0: Good morning, church. This morning's text is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. This morning, I'll be reading from the House Bible. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one from the back table. James is holding some up back there. Thank you, buddy. Again, that's chapter, er, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Um, Well, it is a joy to be with y'all this week. As uh, some of you know, I was not here last week when I'd planned on being here, uh, but had an incredible man cold. Uh, Ginger had the same one and I'm pretty sure she could have been the president of the United States during that cold, but me, I couldn't have like a clear thought for like an hour straight. Like it just, there was hard to do anything, uh, hard for me to do anything at all. Ginger took care of the kids, worked, did everything. I was curled up on the couch in a fetal position and just needed everything brought to me. Uh, but, uh, over the last couple days I've had some clear thoughts, uh, so that's been helpful, been able to, maybe I'll stick to my notes a little more clearly cause, uh, I need to know what they say cause it's, the clear thoughts are still uh, a little elusive, but thankful uh, I heard that Justin came out uh, last week, and that was a super encouraging time. And so you can be encouraged. Uh, one of the things he said, he's like, "Man, y'all have an incredible church." He was like, "It was just a joy to be around and meet uh, the people that brought it. God had brought together uh, at Northbrook." And so be encouraged that when someone comes and is a part of what the Lord's doing here, even for one Sunday, uh, he was super encouraged uh, by each of you. So. Uh, thankful for him and thankful for that. Uh, one other thing, never mind, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to stick to my notes, we'll see if that comes back some other time. Uh, so we're hopping back into the Rooted series this week. Uh, so obviously we planned on doing that last week, but uh, weren't able to, and so hopping back into this series in which we're trying to root our faith uh, into the foundational Christian truths and practices. Um, As we get going today, I was reminded of a book I read, I think I was probably 20 when I was uh, really starting to follow Jesus. And and actually really uh, around 19 and 20, it was like the first time I was exposed to that there were books outside of the Bible written about Christianity. I didn't really know that was a thing. Some of us take that for granted, like our kids grew up knowing that, but I didn't really know that was a thing. And so I started reading these books and they were super helpful. Uh, One of them was Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Maybe some of you, Uh, have read it and he has a very popular statement that I've pointed to many many people have pointed to uh, throughout the years since he wrote it and he says this in the introduction he says what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you so what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you And so as we seek to be rooted in the foundational Christian truths and practices, as we seek to be like a tree planted by a stream that finds its nourishment in the God that created all trees and streams, how could we start anywhere else but with this question? And I think Tozer is spot on. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And this isn't just true for like Christians and Muslims and religious people. It's not just true, uh, it's true for every person. Because how you answer the God question informs the entirety of your life. Even if you don't care about the God question, that is in itself an answer to the God question. And it informs the entirety of your life. None of us get around answering this question how have you answered this question? What comes to mind when you think about God? What is that for you? And I think even for those of us in here that are Christians, how well do we know this God? And now, I, I think that's kind of a tricky question to some extent, but let me just illustrate the importance of, of knowing God. I think about, uh, I love my family. I, I love them really deeply. I can talk to you about all the reasons I love my family, all the different things I love about my family. But one of the reasons I'm able to love my family so deeply is because I know them so well. I, I'm, around them, I'm around these people all of the time. I love and know many of you, and many of you know and love, obviously your families and one another, but to the extent we know each other is to the extent that our love can go. And obviously that is true of God. I like what uh, Jen Wilkins says. She says, the heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. The heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. Our love for God is impacted by our knowledge of Him. Now I wanna be clear, knowledge does not equal love for sure, the demons know God and shudder. That's what's actually absent from their relationship with God is a love for God. So, so knowledge does not equal love, but knowledge is incredibly important uh, if we are to love God. Um, and so even as we think about getting to know God, there are obviously many ways we could take this. Do we focus on God's divine attributes like knowledge of the holy does, or his character, or his many names? There's all kinds of different ways we can go, but there's a, a foundational reality about God that informs all others. And, and that is the reality that God is triune. That God is Trinity. The, the New City Catechism that we gave out last week, and if you didn't get one, you can uh, get one this week in the um, welcome table in the back. It asks this question, as question number three in the New City Catechism. It says, how many persons are there in God? The answer, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So we believe as Christians in the Trinity. Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, yet one God. Now obviously that answer is simple enough, but the triune nature of God is something that baffles many. Many. Your, your head might be hurting already trying to comprehend and understand uh, this trinity. Um, and, and this this struggle, I think, to try to comprehend the trinity is one of the reasons that we often reach for unhelpful metaphors. I remember being in a well-meaning Sunday school class, and the teacher described the trinity as a pie. There's one pie, but you can cut it into three pieces. Those are big pieces of pie. Uh, But and some of you may have heard pictures like that or other different metaphors like that. Let me just give you a quick like lesson. They're all wrong. Every one of them. Every picture someone grabs for to try to explain the Trinity uh, is wrong. It's not like a clover. It's not like an egg. It's not like it's not. All of those uh, stumble into some kind of heresy. Uh, They're all wrong. Uh, I I, I stumbled across a fictional story about Augustine. Augustine, a great uh, uh, theologian from the 3rd century, uh, 4th century, I mean, he uh, was writing a book on the Trinity, and this is a fictional story. It's not real, but it, it goes like this, uh, where he stumbled upon a, a boy as he was writing this book on the beach, and the, the boy had dug a hole on the beach, and he was uh, running to the ocean, and he was putting water from the ocean into the hole, and Augustine uh, watched him uh, do this for a bit, and he's like, and finally, he was like, hey, what are you doing? And he was like, well, I'm trying to fit the ocean into that hole, and he's like, you're never going to be able to do that. And the boy looked at Augustine and he said, and you're never going to be able to fit the Trinity in your mind. Um, and and that's, the, that's the reality, is that we try to grab for those metaphors because we want to boil God down to something we can understand kind of perfectly. Um, and, and there is a reality that we are not going to be able to fit the Trinity into our mind. Uh, but, but here's the, the other wrong thing, is, is we swing the pendulum. And we think, okay, we just throw our hands up and oh, I can't know. The Trinity is so mysterious. How can we ever know anything about the Trinity? But here's the, also the reality. God has revealed himself as the Trinity. And there is so much that can be known. Now we can't perfectly understand it. There's a mystery there that will uh, be present until uh, Jesus comes back. Uh, but but there is much of God to be known uh, in the Trinity. There actually is no other way to know God except for as he reveals himself as the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it is worth... Uh, pursuing and trying to understand and striving to consider who God is and the church has been doing this since the beginning of time we'll see this in the scriptures but even before the scriptures just to, to give you a little quick glimpse into church history two of the most foundational creeds of the church uh, talk about and express the reality of who uh, this trinity is we're not going to look at the whole creeds but I, I took some excerpts from them so the Nicene Creed uh, written in AD 325 at the Council of Nicaea says this I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. And so again, the Trinity is revealed um, in the church and worshiped as God. And then one other uh, creed from a little after the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, says this, now this is the Catholic faith. And by Catholic, it's just means the universal faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. The person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. The glory, Their glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And so again, even if you get nothing else, that we as Christians believe in these foundational principles of who God is as Trinity. So that you can walk away knowing that you can know that and you can know that with confidence and not just throw your hands up and be like, I don't understand any aspect of this. There are, this is how God has revealed himself. And I think even. Trinity uh, confessions, uh, there's propositions, uh, different ways to understand the Trinity, uh, systematic theologies you can read that are super helpful, but obviously the most helpful way to understand the Trinity is to look at the scriptures, and we're going to look at a lot of scriptures today. There's a book, I think this is a slide, did you put the picture of the book? Yeah, there's a book, uh, here, here we are, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, uh, An Introduction to the Christian Faith by Michael Reeves, that I would strongly commend to you, and it was really hard for this just not to be one long quote of Michael Reeves. Reeves book uh, but what I would and, and even the the, ser- the sermon kind of takes the shape of the middle three chapters where we'll see that we'll see the trinity in creation we'll see the trinity in salvation and we'll see the trinity in sanctification uh, but but um, the lighting in the trinity is one of those books that will lead you to not just understand the trinity but actually stand in awe and worship the trinity uh, it's one of those books you just have to set down on occasion and just thank God for who he is Um, it's a a really encouraging read so I would uh, commend it to you so first Trinity in creation how did the Trinity create what does that even mean obviously a good place to start is the beginning Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the first two verses of the Bible, we see the Father and the Spirit active in creation. The Father goes on to speak creation into existence as the Spirit hovers over creation like a dove, uh, bringing life to all the Father creates because that's what the Spirit does. It brings life and salvation and creation. And we can see the Son as well in creation, but we have to look back through the New Testament. John 1, 1-3 says, in the beginning, so again, just like Genesis 1-1, but John 1, 1 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Another way to say it, Paul says in Colossians 1, 15-17, He is the image of the invisible God. This is speaking of Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So we see the Father created through the Son and nothing was made without the Son. I think it was Calvin who said that the Holy Spirit and the Son were like the Father's right and left hand in creation. The agents that He created through. So we see the Trinity active in creation. But here's the question. Why did God create? Like what was the point of creation? Uh, John 17, 24. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Father, I desire that they also... Whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. And then listen to this line here. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So eternally, the Father was loving the Son. There was never a time in which the Father was not loving the Son. This even helps us understand the term begotten Son. We here think that God created when we hear the word begotten, but if there was ever a time the Son was not, then there would be a time when the Father was not the Father. And so that's why the the old creeds use the eternally begotten, that the, the Son was always the Son, and the Father was always the Father. There was never a time when they didn't exist eternally loving and enjoying each other. And it's out of that abundant love. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want them to have what I have. And what Jesus most has is the love of the Father. The the very love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father is what spilled over into creation. God wasn't needy. He didn't need something. He didn't didn't just need someone to worship Him. He didn't need someone to love Him. He was overflowing and abundant in His love. And He wanted to share that love. The, The Son wanted to share that love. The Father wanted to share that love. And that is what spilled over into creation. Out of the eternal fountain of love that they share with each other, the Father creates through the Spirit and the Son. I love what Michael Reeves says. He says... This God does not begrudge having someone else beside him. He enjoys it. He has always enjoyed showering his love on his son. And in creating, he rejoices to shower it on children he loves through the son. And even if you were to think about uh, the 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 reality of the other creation narratives that that compete with Christianity, or just the other creation narratives uh, that are out there, Reeves also offers an incredible insight into uh, the really the creation narratives of non-triune gods. If there is no Trinity, then the purpose of create, then what is the purpose of creation? In many other creation narratives, God create basically out of need, a need to be worshipped a need for slaves. Creation is formed from a clash between gods. The early Gnosticism believes that creation was like the the bad stuff of existence that was thrown out and that was creation. It was kind of the trash that was thrown out. Or, Or really even the popular view now that everything is God. To be honest with you, that's some version of probably the most Common view right now in in our new age culture where we believe that in some form or another, I'm God, you're God, everything's God. Basically, creation in and of itself is God. It wasn't created, it's been eternal. And it was, it just is. I think about, uh, obviously, uh, popular religion in Islam. The reality is that you can really never know if you are saved. You can only hope that you've done enough to please Allah. That's just, I'm not not mocking that faith, that's just a belief that they hold. They have to hope by the end of their life that they've done enough. Every God that isn't the triune God takes its cue from the, the devil. They are gods of need, not gods that have existed with overflowing love and created out of that abundance. Even just think about 1 Peter 5, 7 and 8, and look at this contrast between God and the devil. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's speaking of our God. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil is the pinnacle of all earthly needy gods. He takes and consumes while God gives and shares. I was watching this, uh, just stumbled onto... This interview with a gal that came out of kind of new age, she was like a new age healer. She was into crystals, into astrology, into like deep into all of those things and, and was like leading people in those things and helping people find healing. All the while, every night, she was going to, pre- going to bed depressed and wanting to commit suicide. And in a strange order of events, the Lord saves her, the Lord brings her out of that. And what she sees is that difference. It is, is how all of those things continually took from her continually needed more they were like a high that she had to continually find more of and then she came to this god this god who actually gave all gave everything and that she could rest in and actually find hope and healing that's the difference between the gods of this world and the triune god of the universe one one last thing about creation that i just enjoyed this is actually from reeve's book but it's a quote from c.s lewis i just really enjoyed this he said Uh, He's writing a uh, a letter to Owen Barfield and he says, talking of beasts and birds, have you ever noticed this contrast? That when you read a scientific account of any animal's life, you get an impression of laborious, incessant, almost rational economic activity. But when you study any animal, you know what at once strikes you is their cheerful fatuity, the pointlessness of nearly all they do. Say what you like, Barfield. The world is sillier and better fun than they make out. And he said this before he could scroll Instagram and watch videos of pandas. Like, he, like we, we could just see that this is a, a reality. And that, that, that in, in, in creation, we see the generosity and just the abundance of God's love. He, he's created things that are not needed in any way, but they're there just to be enjoyed. Uh, this, this is the God of creation that is overflowing, not needy, but Giving. This is what we get in the God that created. When we can see God's generous nature when we study creation. So creation is out of the Father's overflowing love for the Son. Creation represents the abundance and generosity of God's love. In creation, we saw this in Colossians 1, creation is made for Jesus and for those that put their faith in him share in Jesus' inheritance. And so when we look at creation, we see all of these things, but obviously we, we see something else. We see also that creation is broken. We see that humanity is broken. I'm reading a uh, biography on Hitler right now because that's how I like to party. Um, And uh, if there's ever been a picture of humanity's brokenness, um, I mean, creation's broken. We don't have to look at Hitler. We can just look around. Uh, But there's so many examples. Um, And we are marred by rebellion to God. And this is how we come to understand the Trinity in our salvation. If we're going to explore the Trinity in salvation, we must start with the question, what went wrong? I love Reeves again here. He says this. What then went wrong? It was not that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created as lovers in the image of God. And they cannot undo that. Instead, their love turned. When the Apostle Paul writes of sinners, he describes them as lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers we remain, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to ourselves and anything but God. And this is just what we see in the original sin of Adam and Eve. Eve takes and eats the forbidden fruit because a love for herself and gaining wisdom for herself has overcome any love she might have had for God. God created us to enjoy him and inherit all of his creation. Yet a deeper thing has happened in our heart. More than mere disobedience, we have given our love to another. We have spurned his offer and chosen pleasure or power or personal comfort or something else over the eternal love of God. This is why we need salvation. And we don't merely need to do more right things or stop doing bad things. If we have a heart that doesn't love God, we need, obviously, a new heart. A heart that loves and enjoys God. A heart that worships the creator of all things, not the creation. And the rebellion of humanity exposes an even deeper layer of God's self-giving love. If we thought creation shows God's generosity, which it does, how much more God's redemption displays the depths of God's love. Let me reread the, the passage that uh, Jeremy read for us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-14. In the original Greek, this is one long sentence. It's like Paul just explodes with his overwhelmed reality and understanding of God's abundant love. Listen to this. Let this just wash over you as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, let this be an invitation to the love of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so in this passage, we actually see that the Trinity is the shape of the gospel. Without a Trinity, there is no gospel. The Father choosing before the foundation of the world. The Son accomplishing redemption with His very blood. And the Spirit sealing those who would inherit all of these blessings. Again, without the Trinity, there is no gospel gospel I, I love the the beauty that that God that, that one of the pinnacles of salvation is that God adopts us into his family I mean you, you we can't it's hard to comprehend that uh, those those of you in here that are parents that have adopted can comprehend it maybe a bit better than those of us that haven't but, but here's the thing about adoption you you can't there's no way to earn yourself into being a son if, if we're hired, we need to earn or keep. The worker deserves his wages. But, but we, we are adopted by someone who just set his affection upon us. And he has made us sons. Now that may sound in some way, if you just focus on the son thing, a little misogynistic in the sense of man, woman and child, we all become sons. But also ladies, we all become the bride of Christ too. So we all have something to work through there. Uh, <laughs> But, but the picture is, who, who, who is my son? But, the, but the, the one, he, he, there's no way he didn't, he didn't try hard enough to become my son. Those we adopt into our families, it wasn't because of their work. It's because we chose to set our affection upon them. And that's what the God of the universe has done to you. He has adopted you into his family. He has set his affection uh, upon you, and you are invited into sonship. Uh, there's, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can earn. Uh, he, he initiated every aspect of this. It shows that our adoption shows the initiating love of God. He loves us first. 1 John 4, 9, and 10. And this is the love of God. In this, I'm sorry. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen to Reeves again, just soak in this quote. The father then is not about sprinkling blessings from afar. And his salvation is not about being kept at a distance, merely pitied and forgiven by our creator. Instead, he pours all his blessings out on his son and then sends him that we might share His glorious fullness. The Father so loves that He desires to catch us up into that loving fellowship He enjoys with the Son. And that means I can know God as He truly is. A Father. In fact, I can know the Father as my Father. That is something we all desperately need. So to talk about salvation... With the Trinity, through the Son, by the work of the Spirit, we are adopted into the Father's family. Say it again, there is nothing you can do to earn your way into a family. We don't compete for adoption or work for adoption. We simply receive it. And this is the truth that we go on to grow in more and more in our sanctification. So as we think about the Trinity and our sanctification, just to say it, in case you've never heard that word, sanctification is a word that just simply describes our ongoing relationship with God. Meaning that in salvation, we begin a relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, adopted by the Father, united to the Son, filled with the Spirit. And in sanctification, we continue to grow in our understanding of how this relationship applies to every aspect of our life. This is how our roots grow deeper in this truth of who God is as a triune God. And this is where the Spirit's work shines in our life. Listen to Jesus in John 16. He's talking about going away, but he says there's something better than him even remaining present. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. So this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit takes what Jesus has and declares it to us. And again, what does Jesus' glory in most? But the eternal love of the Father. Sanctification is about growing in our knowledge of the Father's love for us. As we do this, we will actually be more conformed into the image of His Son, as Ephesians 4 says, as we are guided by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says that's what sanctification is about and when we lose track of that sanctification just again becomes a way to earn this father's love like i haven't earned this adoption and so i need to figure this out and you have to understand and embrace reality you're right you haven't earned this adoption and so the more you actually grow in that is growing in sanctification the more you realize you can't do this certain thing you can't read your bible enough or pray enough or go to church enough to earn the father's adoption You can't do those things. But man, when you do those things because you realize you are a son in this father's world and you want to know and love and enjoy and see the reality that that makes in your life and the life of others all the more, obviously that's a different kind of motivation. And I I think as we think about this, this is where sanctification is just where the Trinity gets practical. You know, even when you hear Trinity, you may think this is something that stuffy theologians just sit around and discuss. And it is something that stuffy theologians sit around and discuss. But there's nothing more practical. The, the Trinity is incredibly practical. The Trinity is about dirty dishes, about wayward children, about coaching Little League, about being an empty nester, about marital conflict, about taking friends, talking to friends from other religions. It's about being sick and grumpy for a week. It's in these very places in our life that we are invited to take part in the eternal love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. And the Spirit invites us into this kind of sanctification. Those are the places where we're most likely to neglect the love of the Father. And actually just not even think of it at all. And invitations every time to actually see what it means that you're an adopted son in this Father's world by the, the work of the Son through the power of the Spirit. This is what we're invited into. And again, not just so we can get what we want in those situations, but that's so we can see how much we've already been given in their Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't just appeal to the Father so we can actually get this kind of circumstance to change. We want to get more of Him in this circumstance I think one practical way we can stay rooted in God as Trinity is even as we think about these different areas I don't there's no it's I think I think it was Calvin again who said you know the chief end of uh, the chief work of ministry is prayer and, and if we're going to uh, come to grips with and grow in who God is and what He has done for us as, as Father, Son, and Spirit, it's to engage Him in that way and to engage Him uh, in prayer. I think about even this week, me and my oldest son were talking about some things. He's, he's working through, and so we came upon First Peter 1, 17-19, and, and read this together. It says, And if you call on Him as Father, it's praying, Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as gold or silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, what Peter is saying is those hard things in life that you're facing. That it's the Father, Son, and Spirit that you need to appeal to, that you need to cry out to, and that you actually need to understand more to face those very hard things. It's not just some worldly advice. Worldly advice has its place. Just read the book of Proverbs. It, it can be incredibly helpful. But in the deep struggles that we have, which are many, we need the depths of who God is. And that's re- revealed in God as Trinity and who he, is, who he is and what He has done for us. And I think even as uh, the Trinity, I'll, I'll leave with a, a really uh, practical step. There, there's kind of two ways to engage the Trinity uh, in prayer. This is uh, another thing from Michael Reeves. It's not on the screen, but I'll read it for you. What does it, what does it all mean for how we pray, speaking of the Trinity? He says, well, since we have communion, and he's kind of, sorry, he's, he's summarizing John Owen's communion with God. You probably didn't need to know that, but here you go. Uh, Well, since we have communion with all three persons, it is quite right that we should pray to all three. Jesus commends prayer to the Father in John 16. Stephen prayed to Jesus in Acts 7. And while it's harder to find clear instances in the Bible of prayer to the Spirit, Owen, John Owen, is adamant that we can. The Holy Ghost, being God, is no less to be invocated, prayed to, and called on than the Father and the Son. And here's how the Trinity informs our prayer. When we actually realize the role of the Trinity in the Gospel, uh, in creation, in our sanctification, then we appeal to the Trinity to do those very things in our life. That the Spirit would continue to show us the love of the Father. That the Spirit would continue to conform us into the image of the Son. That the Spirit would continue to bear His fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control in our lives. When we understand more and more of who God is, we appeal to God to, to bring that forth in the midst of our lives. So we pray in this Trinitarian kind uh, of way. And then uh, one other thing things that Reeves says is that the Spirit supports us in prayer. The Son brings us, and the Father, who always delights to hear the prayers of His Son, hears us with joy. With the Son, secure in Him, enabled as He is by the Spirit, we pray to our Father. And so we can pray to each person of the Trinity, but then even as we kind of in the normal flow of life are continuing to appeal to the Father, we do that as someone who is secure in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. The the Trinity is always present in every aspect of our life. Even in different aspects where where, where one person of the Trinity is more present, the other two are close by. There's no isolation in the Trinity. There's no just the Father does this or just the Son does this or just the Spirit does this. They have their particular roles, but the other two are always close by in whatever the other one uh, is doing. And this should inform our prayers. Uh, I'm going to end with two things. One, uh, I I brought these. Oh wait, I think I have this prayer on a slide. So this is um, the one that starts, good morning, Heavenly Father. Uh, So I'm going to read this to you. But this is uh, from a book called A Praying Church. Well, I'll read this to you here in just a second. And this is a, kind of a Trinitarian prayer that I've been praying for my kids as they go out, when they get in the car and get off to school on occasion, maybe one out of five or six days, I'll call and pray this prayer over them, just not trying to brag about being too good. Um, and, uh, but it's a, a really helpful way Uh, to start the day and we have one of these for you at the welcome table and you go out and so on one side it's just that prayer it's a prayer that when you pray it I want to encourage you to make it your own to hear these words and and make these words your own don't just pray it in a rote way but it's a super helpful uh, way to start the morning but then also on the other side of it is just a really helpful uh, kind of prayer questions like, if you're just struggling, you're having a bad moment, you can literally go to this other side and answer some of the questions as a way to engage uh, what's going on uh, and engage God in that. Like, how do you feel? Where am I? How are others around me doing? What concerns me about the, what's going on around me? Just so, a lot of questions like that that can help you. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. And these questions can kind of help uh, spark that. But I, I love this prayer. I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray this day, you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons and one God. Have mercy upon me. Amen. So you can pick one of those on your way out. I'm going to read this last verse over you a couple times and then I'll pray for us. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I actually want to read that over us one more time. If you'd be willing, you can close your eyes, you can open your hands and receive this from the Lord as I speak this over you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, we come to you and we ask for that very thing. For the grace of the Lord Jesus, for your love, Father, and for the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be with us, to empower us, to soften our hearts, to bring humility into our lives, to expose the pride to expose the ways that we've turned to and loved other things, even this morning, even now. And to lead us into the only satisfying love. To show us that there is a deeper and fuller and eternal love that we are invited to, even this very moment. We don't have to neglect it anymore. We get to enjoy it for all that it is and all that it's ever been. And one day we will get to enjoy it without the curse of sin, unfettered, full. We will get to see You and gaze upon You in Your glory and worship You as the self-giving, abundant, generous, loving God that You are. And so would You do that work as much as we can have it even now, Spirit? That we would love You and that even that the world would know that we love you by our love for one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.